This morning we're just continuing and concluding a, a, a series that we started a few weeks ago, ago called Fake News. And uh, we're all familiar with that term, I'm sure. It's nothing new, though it's become more uh, commonplace the last few months, especially in the States, but in North America. But we've been likening uh, that to uh, some things that we see taking place according to the Scriptures in the spirit realm or in our walk with Christ as followers of Jesus Christ. And essentially what fake news is in both realms, it's the creation of a false narrative. And the intent of that false narrative is to have you believe, obviously, some things that are not true. And as believers, the Bible says that we have a very real adversary. His name is Satan. And one of his uh, strategies, he has many schemes against us, Paul says, that we're not unaware of. But the intent of that strategy is to make us believe falsehoods or lies in order that we never experience truth. We never experience the truth of who God is and what it is that God intends for us. And we saw last time that in Revelation chapter 12, that uh, <clears throat> Satan is actually called by a name that describes his primary activity. Anybody remember what that name is? Close. Uh, the accuser. And uh, the way he does it, of course, as we saw in the examples of Job's wife and, and the apostle Peter, is that he will use our mouth to give life or give voice to the things that he is speaking in the spirit realm. Uh, there are some things, for example, he may speak to you quietly in the privacy of your own mind, and he can also use somebody else to speak those lies so that it kind of affirms that lie in your heart. But if we're not careful, we can allow the enemy to use us, even with the best of intentions, but especially when we feel that we always have to express our opinion, it really is prime uh, real estate for the enemy to speak things through you, uh, to uh, speak into others' lives and to continue his work. So those accusations we saw actually begin in our thoughts. And if those thoughts are not brought into captivity, as the Scripture says, then over time they become uh, promotion of darkness and death. And I left you last week with a Scripture, and I realize that's why some of you probably uh, who aren't here stayed away because you're afraid it's going to call on you. But I ask you to commit to memory a Scripture. Do you remember what the Scripture reference was? <clears throat> Just the reference. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Anybody want to give it a shot? Anybody been studying real hard this week and committed to memory? Renee, you want to stand and give it to us? Sure. Nice and loud. Amen. Philippians 4 and 8, right? Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, what? Think about these things. Why does Paul say that? Because the enemy always begins in our thoughts. And he says, if you will use this principle, if you will think about these things that are good and of God, you will always speak life. You will always promote life. Proverbs tells us that, that the tongue has the power to give life or death. It's in the power of the tongue. And we all know that, don't we? Things that we speak, things that we hear can promote life or death. Paul goes on to say in the next verse, actually, he says, whatever you have learned or read or heard or seen in me, he says, do these things. So Paul's not saying, this is just theory. You watch me, I model this. You've heard me talk. You watch me interact. I model this. And then he gives this promise. And the God of peace will be with you. 
And that's where the Lord wants you and me to live in every area of our lives. He wants us to be mastered, ruled by peace. And not to live out of the chaos of what the enemy wants to bring by the things he speaks in our life. If you were following along in your Bible reading plan, you would have read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 last week, where Paul says this. When you talk, do not say harmful things. Will you read the rest with me? But say what people need. What do they need? Words that will help others become stronger. So just a few of those scriptures, if we would just commit them to memory, what happens? In the times the enemy comes against us with, uh, with accusation or with negative things, what happens? The Holy Spirit brings that scripture to remembrance. It becomes a weapon for us, and we stop the accusation. Well, this morning we're picking up where we left off last week, and we're going to look at exactly how it is that, that Satan uses accusation. He uses accusation against God, and he uses accusation against people. Number one, Satan plants accusing thoughts about God. I'm kind of jumping into this this morning. If you want to listen online to last week's teaching, you'll see where we're going. But I don't want to take a lot of time to recap a lot from last week. But he will plant accusing thoughts about God. In the very beginning, we see that in the, in the book of Genesis chapter 2 with Adam and Eve, um, God creates them. He gives them a beautiful paradise in which to live. They can have anything they want in that garden except what does God say. He says, of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you must not partake of that tree. If you do, you will die. In other words, our relationship will be broken. I, I, you know, you have that free will, and so I want you to worship me out of your own freedom, out of your own sincerity, so there has to be somewhat of a test. That tree's not there to draw you away. It's just there, but you're not to partake of that. Well, Satan comes along. Some theologians say probably within a matter of a few weeks, maybe a month. It wasn't a long time after, no doubt. He comes along and he says to Eve in chapter 3, you will not surely die, even though God said you would. Why? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And as I meditated on that scripture, I thought, you know, that is so true. That lie hasn't changed. Because whenever the devil comes to you or me with accusation, what is he saying? What he's saying is, listen, I'm giving you some insight. Yeah, yeah. You see, you have this unique ability to know what that person's thinking. You know why they did what they did. You know the motives of their heart. You got them figured out. You see, if you'll just listen to me when I'm telling you the thoughts I'm planning in your mind, well, you know something that other people don't know. And he makes us think that somehow we have an insight. So what happens here with Adam and Eve? Well, we see that as long as Eve has a picture of who God really is, as long as she understands that he loves her and that he really has her best interest at heart, well, Satan knows that temptation is not going to be an issue. And it's the same with you and me. Friends, when we truly know the love that God has for us, when we learn to live in his love, in his presence, when the enemy comes against us to tempt us, what's our reaction? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You think I'm going to fall for that? No, I know who God is. I know who I am. I'm not going that direction. So the way the devil trips us up is he changes our picture of God. And he uses accusation to do that, an accusation like this. Well, if God really loved you, this wouldn't happen. If God really cared about you, you wouldn't feel this way. If God really had your best interest at heart, if he really knew you existed, well, things would happen this way. It's the same thing that goes on in all of our minds. But once you allow that accusation to lodge in your mind, 
then you're ripe for deception. And once you're deceived, you're ripe for disobedience. Because once you truly believe, you buy in the lie, even though you, in the larger scene of things you might say, well, I know there's God, I know he knows me, I know he cares, but in the microcosm of a particular situation, if the devil can get you to believe that he doesn't care, he doesn't know your address, he doesn't know what's going on, he can't relate to you, he's really too busy for you right now, then he'll get you to disobey. In other words, he'll get you to just take things into your own hands. Speak what you want to speak, do what you want to do. He'll even convince you that his work, the devil's work in your life, is God's doing. The devil is so twisted and we are so easy to deceive that even areas of our life that are consequences to our own disobedience, the devil has a way of taking those consequences, twisting them, so we actually accuse God of somehow not being fair or not being good toward us. And once Satan has you there, you stop talking to God. You stop communing with him. You stop worshiping. You stop spending time in his presence. You stop taking your daily decisions to him. Because the scripture says, we know it very well, Proverbs, in all your ways acknowledge the Lord, right? Don't depend on your own understanding. Acknowledge him, and what will he do? He will direct your paths. But you see, if the devil can keep you away from the presence of the Lord, if he can keep you away from consulting with the Lord, then you begin to think that you have to do things on your own. How many, you don't have to raise your hand because I don't want to embarrass you, but I would raise my hand too. How many have ever had this experience where you feel like you should pray about something first, but you don't want to because you know what God's going to say? He's not going to give you the lottery numbers, at least not all of them. You know, it, there's just things that, well, why bother? You know, God's just going to say no. Well, what is that? That is us believing the accusation of the devil that God does not have your best interest at heart, that somehow he's the killjoy, somehow he's going to rob you of what it is that is really best for you. So we, we stop taking things to God, and we believe the lies about his character and his motives. The second thing Satan does, he plants accusing thoughts about others, not only about God, but also about others. And I can only imagine how much damage the enemy has done in our hearts, in our homes, in our churches, just by accusations. I mean, he does it all the time. You know, you know, you're in a kind of a bad mood. You decide to come to church anyway. Worship's going on. What do you do? You look at somebody worshiping, and your first thought that comes to mind, they think they're so spiritual. They're not doing a thing. They're just worshiping God. Oh, yeah, who do they think they are? They think they got it all together. I know about them. Or that woman that so-and-so didn't talk to me this morning. They don't like me. Nobody cares about me. So what happens? In the body of Christ, instead of coming together, worshiping together, praying together to combat our common enemy, the devil wants to become suspicious of each other. He wants to draw distance from each other, and that's all he has to do. All he's got to do is convince you of somebody's wrong motives, and he gets you in that whole web of deceit. So here's the reality when it comes to the devil's working in our minds. He can't change what somebody has done, whether good or bad. He can't change what they have done. What he can change is how you think about why they did what they did or how you think about why they didn't do what you think they should have done. Let me say that again. He can't change what was done, but he can change the way you think about why it was done. For example, you're driving down the road. Somebody cuts you off. What do you do? If you're like me, you just speak a word of blessing. <laughs> say, Lord, bless them. You do that, right? Not most times. Right away, what do we do? We begin to think of their motives. 
They're so inconsiderate. They're this, they're that, whatever might go through your mind. Now, how would you feel? Because see, what we're, what we're judging is not the action. It's not the action that upsets us. It's why they did what they did. You follow me? And we assume to know why they did what they did because we know everything. So we assume to know that. But let's say, for example, somebody cut you off. You're driving down Mountain Road, okay? Somebody cuts you off. And an angel appears in the passenger seat. And the angel said to you, the reason that person cut you off was because they just got a call and their spouse is in the hospital. You see, it didn't change what happened. But what happens in your heart? All of a sudden, you understand motive, and you begin to have empathy for them, and you're not angry with them at all. Why? Because you understand what happened, right? Or again, somebody cuts you off, you're upset, an angel appears and says, you can't see this person right now, but they feel terrible. You were in their blind spot. They didn't see you, and then the last second they had to gun it because they realized they're going to hit you. You see, you may still kind of be bothered by the fact they cut you off, but do you understand where I'm going with this? Now you begin to understand the motive of what they did, and you're not as upset. Why? Because we get upset at the reason that we think why they did what they did. We automatically, in our flesh, default to thinking the worst about why people do what they do. And it's the same with every interaction we have with people. They do an action. Satan can't change what they've done, but he can change what you think is the intention behind the action. So here we go again. So-and-so didn't say hi to me this morning in church. Maybe they didn't see you. You know? Somebody left my Facebook group. Well, maybe they got the message and they don't want to ping on their phone every 30 seconds for the next two hours because they have a life. You know, whatever the motivation may be, but automatically we default to a negative perception of why people do what they do. And we are so ripe for the picking because the devil knows it's just our human nature to accept the accusation and just run with it. And he has a heyday. That's how he drives a wedge in relationship. That's how he tears marriages apart. I mean, how many of our marriages here this morning would be radically changed if as Christian couples we simply decided, you know what? No more accusations in our home. No more accusations. I am going to believe the best first before the worst. Wouldn't that radically change our marriages? Wouldn't it radically change our churches? Even if, we, even if what they did was intentional, our first response would be, you know what, even though what they did wasn't the best thing, it kind of hurt me a little bit, I'm going to believe, I'm going to choose to believe that they do feel bad about it. And we're going to talk about this, and we're going to make it right. How many marriages would be saved? How many churches would thrive? How much kingdom impact would we have in our city if we simply stop thinking the worst about people and understand that when we do, it is, the, it is the enemy at work? That's what it is. It's not just your special insights. It's not because you somehow are able to discern the intents and the motives of the human heart. It's because the enemy comes to you and says, this is what happened. This is why it happened. And if you believe the lie, then the festering begins. The scripture says he's the accuser of our brothers and sisters. And I want you to notice all this because it's accusation that actually works the exact opposite of love. Love comes from God. Accusation comes from Satan. And the two are diametrically opposed to each other. 1 Corinthians 13, we know the scripture well. Will you read it with me? 
Paul writes about love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Let me just stop there for a second. I don't believe what Paul is saying is that love does not rejoice in evil. He's saying love does not rejoice in uh, wrongdoing. In other words, I don't get happy when something goes wrong with you because it somehow makes me feel better. You understand what I'm saying? I don't rejoice when something doesn't work. I don't rejoice when you don't have success because it makes me feel more comfortable in my apathy or my misery, whatever the case may be. I'm going to be real transparent with you. I know I don't do that very often, but I'm going to be really transparent. We had a wonderful church plan in Halifax, and uh, they have their, they've been working for about a year uh, just around uh, Bears Lake, Chain Lake Drive area. Uh, a wonderful church plant, a sharp young pastor, millennial, and uh, had a team with him working together. Uh, they had about 100 people committed uh, to that from another church and, and just doing all this work for the whole year. They had their church opening two weeks ago, and in their first service, they had almost 375 people. 375 people. You know what my first thought is? We may not be the biggest church anymore. Isn't that spiritual? Well, you want to get real spiritual. I haven't stopped yet. Usually when you have your first service kickoff, and they had a lot of guests, and I understand dignitaries and folks come to check it out. Usually in church planting, your second service will kind of drop quite a bit, and then you begin to kind of level off, and then you know who you have, and you work on from there. Well, last week I was curious to find out how many they had. Because secretly I'm thinking, I hope they didn't have more. And I was glad to find out they actually had about 250. Now, is that carnal or what? Isn't that stupid? It's kind of like Paul saying about real love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. Now, they did nothing wrong, but the thing is, you know, if you feel like you got kind of something to protect, you know, whatever it may be, it's hard to explain because it's so stupid. You know, it's just, it's just the flesh. It's stupid. It's carnality. But we think that way. So we kind of rejoice. We don't want to see anybody get hurt, but we kind of rejoice if they're not quite as good as us or something that kind of happens to keep them in their place so they understand we're, we're still... You know, we're still king of the hill. You know, absolutely ludicrous. But you see, that's not love. That's accusation on a whole bunch of different levels. But the enemy does the same thing to you and me. Rather than letting love reign and rejoicing where there's life and where there's fruitfulness and anything you can do to be a part of that and bless that, what do we do in our own small-mindedness if we allow the enemy to have his way? Because what does he do? When he has our thoughts, he begins to shrink us. He begins to make us miserly. He makes us stingy. Don't you love that word? I mean, it even sounds bad. Stingy. It, just, it sounds rotten to the core, and that's what it is. It's just small-mindedness. That's not what love is. And I wasn't planning to say all that, but that's what he's talking about. Don't rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Will you read the rest with me? Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And when the Scripture says that love believes all things, it doesn't mean that love is gullible. It means that love wants the very best for others, for others in their lives. You see, here's the problem with us fundamentally, our human nature and our fallenness, is that we judge other people by their actions, but we only judge ourselves by our intentions. Do you hear me this morning? Because when we do something wrong, what do we say? Oh, but that's not what I meant. Even if it is, you're still going to get out of it because now you're embarrassed for a dumb thing that you did. 
right? That's not what I meant. That wasn't my intention. But if somebody else does the exact same thing, oh, we just jump all over them, right? Like white on rice. We're just all over them. Why? Because we judge people. We don't give them the benefit of the doubt. But Paul is saying, if love reigns in your heart, if you have not given place to the enemy, his lies, his accusations, then even when someone has done something wrong, you give them the same benefit that you would give yourself. We are called to love others as we love ourselves. And if I do something wrong, I can guarantee you I'm probably going to try to at least soften it a little bit to give you an idea as to why I did it and maybe I shouldn't have, but I'm sorry, and so on. He says, you've got to do the same thing. The devil convinces you to think the opposite, though. The devil convinces you to think the worst of your spouse, the worst of your pastor, the worst of your boss, the worst of any relationship, and ultimately even the worst about God's intentions. That is how the devil works and how he tears us apart. But Paul says love works exactly the opposite. Love says, I refuse to write you off. Even if what you did was intentional, I still choose to not write you off. As best as I can with God's help, I'll come alongside to encourage you and to make you stronger. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love wants the person to succeed, so you hope for the best for them. Can you imagine what would happen if we were determined to believe for the best and to hope for the best in our marriage, in our church? I mean, think about this. How would the devil ever stop us? If we were absolutely determined, I'm going to stop listening to him, I'm going to stop believing the lies, I'm going to begin to believe for God to do great things in and through our lives and the people who are around me. That's what I'm committed to. The devil could not stop us. That's why Paul says, he says to put on, above all else, put on love. Put on love. Tell the person beside you, put on love especially toward me, put on love. And I really believe the reason why we have to be told to put on love is because it doesn't come natural to us in the flesh. It comes natural to us if we are abiding in God's love. If we are walking in love, if we're submitted to love, if we spend time in the presence of the Lord every day, it comes increasingly more, more natural. But if we don't, it doesn't come natural. And the devil knows what does come natural is for us to latch on to his accusations. Because you know what? The truth is, in the flesh, it feels so good. It feels so good just to think about those accusations. It feels so good to wallow in my offense and in my hurt and in my anger and in my self-pity. That feels so good until I start feeling miserable. Then it doesn't feel good. So at some point, we have to, uh, if we're going to have peace in our heart, we have to choose to reject the right to be upset or offended and instead put on love. Why? Because Peter says that love covers over many sins. I like what another translation, it says, love will cause people to forgive each other for many sins. Above all else, put on love. Now, if we're told to put on love, it must be because of the consequence if we don't. You see, the, the commands of God, the truths of God are not optional. They're optional if you don't mind misery, if you don't mind life not working as he intends, but it's not optional if you truly trust that he loves you and wants you to know how life works best. Above all else, put on love. Well, if we don't, what are some things? Let me give you two things that are affected if we don't put on love. Number one is prayer. The devil knows that the greatest weapon in the kingdom of God that's fashioned against him, it is unity in prayer. 
That's the greatest weapon we have as individuals and as a church. Jesus said in Matthew 18, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about something, unity, and pray for it, it will be done for you, my Father in heaven. Psalm 133, we know the scripture well. It says how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in what? In unity. You see, it's good and pleasant. Not everything that's good for you is necessarily pleasant. Some of us are old enough to remember the old, you know, spoonful of Vicks with sugar on top. I don't even know it was good for you, but that's what we had when we were kids at my grandmother's. You know, it wasn't very pleasant. And not everything that's very pleasant for you is necessarily good for you. But here the scripture says there is something that's actually good for you and pleasant, and that is when you dwell together in unity. Because when you do, there is where God commands a blessing. That's where his presence is. The devil knows this. He knows the power of unity and the peace that it brings. You see, the devil knows that when you're at peace, when you're at peace with God, when you're at peace in relationships, when your heart's at peace, things can actually thrive because you make right decisions. So what does he do? He sows suspicion. And the moment people are suspicious of each other, they don't want to pray together. And if they even do pray together, not a lot happens because there's no unity. Have you ever tried to pray with your spouse when you don't have unity? You ever tried to pray with your spouse when, they, when you're upset with them? And they say, we should pray together. And you want to hit them. Because you have suspicion in your heart. You have accusation. You have to have unity if your prayers are going to be effective. And the same, of course, is true in the body of Christ. The effectiveness of any congregation in our city is dependent upon those two things. Upon unity and upon love. So what does the devil do? He tries to sow disunity. He tries to create suspicion and accusation. And that usually begins with someone maybe feeling hurt or in some way neglected, whether true or not. But the point is, Paul says, but we have a choice. We can either put on love and extinguish the devil's accusations, or we can let them fester. And what happens when we let those thoughts fester in our heart? It kind of becomes like a, a kettle of hot water, right? Over time, it begins to bubble up, bubble up, and it has to vent somewhere. We've got to let our steam off, and that's what happens when we become the devil's mouthpieces, whether we speak to somebody else or we just speak it out ourselves. We've we got to vent that steam. And if we're really lucky, we'll vent it to somebody who actually walks with Jesus. Because in love, they will turn to you and say, get behind me, Satan. You're not speaking the things of God. You're a hindrance to me. They'll come alongside you, correct you lovingly, help you to be healed, help you to get the right perspective, rather than just wallowing in all of that the enemy has stirring up in your heart. So one consequence we have for not putting on love is that Satan can shut down prayer. A second consequence is that Satan will shut down giving and service. Yeah, I don't know if you found this. I just find it's just human nature. When you're kind of in the flesh, you, you just generosity doesn't flow from your heart anymore. In fact, it's interesting, a lot of times if people have something they don't like about the church, I guarantee you, nine times out of ten, the first thing that stops is tithing. I'm not giving any more. You know, I'm making a statement kind of thing. I'm, I don't know what it is, protesting or holding something back. But that's just why, because it's not because I'm right or wrong in my attitude or the issue. The, the reality is it's a manifestation that when the enemy begins to get a stronghold in my life, the first thing that always stops is a generosity. A flow of generosity will always stop. And that's just one manifestation of it. And also, my ministry will stop. 
I may still kind of go through the motions, but there's no flow of kingdom power. There's no love. There's no compassion. There's no working of the Holy Spirit through me because I've allowed that to become all damned up within my heart. And so there has to be love. There has to be unity if the body of Christ moves forward and takes ground from the enemy. Well, let me conclude here this morning, but I just mentioned a couple of things. There's a couple of ways that we can actually combat the scheme of the enemy. And some of this uh, hopefully is making sense on its own, but it's a continuation of the last two Sundays for those who were here. If not, again, you can listen online and hopefully it all kind of comes together. But how do we combat these accusations that really plague all of us in, in tiny ways, not necessarily always in big ways? Let me give you a few things real quick and we'll wrap up. Number one, we need to recognize and repent of the accusations that we accept. Again, believing the first thing that comes to our mind it is so second nature to us as human beings that we obviously many times accept it without even question. And so because of that, the devil just picks people off one by one. You know, he makes an accusation and our thought is, yeah, I never thought of that. Or our thought is, yeah, that's a good thought. That's true. Yeah, that person is such and such. Or that is why they did such and such a thing. Or that is how God thinks about me, whatever the case may be. And we just run with it. And friends, the first thing we have to do is we have to determine that we are going to recognize it for what it is, we are going to deal with it, we are going to overthrow it, and we are going to stay free of it. So one of the things I want to challenge you to do, here's a little bit of homework. It doesn't include memorizing Scripture, but just maybe jot this down. I want to give you this challenge. Number one, I want to challenge you to have a regular quiet time with the Lord. If you don't have that, this isn't going to work. But you need to have a regular quiet time, whether it's five minutes in a day, whether it's five minutes, four or five times through the day, whether it's a half hour, whatever it is, whatever works for you as the Holy Spirit leads you, you've got to have quiet time with the Lord. But when you have that quiet time with Him, I want to encourage you to do this. Ask the Lord, Lord, show me if any time yesterday I allowed accusing thoughts in my heart about anyone. Just pause for 30 seconds and say, Lord, did I allow anything? Did I, did I speak anything? Did I comment? Whatever the case may be. And if so, confess that, maybe even write it down if you need to. And if you do that, what you'll discover is you'll actually begin more readily to recognize where it is the enemy is trying to get access into your life. You'll learn to stop agreeing with him. And as Paul says, you'll begin to speak words that help others become stronger. You know what that is? All of this, that's just called putting on the armor. That's all it is. You know, Paul says, put on the armor of God. And it seems so abstract. How do you do that? Number one, just come before the Lord and say, Lord, is there anywhere where the enemy has just kind of gotten through. Lord, I want to recognize and confess that. And another exercise I'd encourage you to do is this. Ask Jesus to show you who you're harboring thoughts against. And I don't mean necessarily these massive unforgiveness issues. Sometimes those are more obvious. I'm talking about those little areas, those little bits of gossip, those little bits of suspicion or hard feelings that are trying to drive a wedge into your heart. I want to encourage you just to write those down what the Holy Spirit shows you. Any kind of negativity where the enemy has gotten past your armor and just has one of his darts, his darts lodged in your mind or your soul, just allow the Lord to show you who that is. Most of us, if we're really honest, even now somebody comes to mind. I'll be honest with you, there are two people in my life, they don't attend glad tidings, but there are two people who from time to time I still have to go to prayer for. I've still got to deal with a little bit. Just some issues, some hurts, some things, whatever, injustices, whatever it may be, just a couple people that really intentionally kind of went after me 
in years past. And I still, when they come to mind, I've just got to deal with that. I've got to bring it before the Lord even just for a moment, which ties into the next one. Allow Jesus to show you how he sees that person. If there is an accusation in your heart, if there is something that comes to your mind, don't only confess that, don't only bring that to the Lord, but ask the Lord, Lord, how do you see them? How do you see them? And what you'll discover, if you will do that bit by bit, the Lord will begin to soften your heart. And he may even begin to show you some of the whys of what they do, what they've done, what they say, whatever the case may be. He will begin to show you some of their brokenness. He will show you some of the ways that the enemy has fashioned, schemed against them and how they've been trapped by some of those devices. And your feelings may not change overnight, but I can promise you this. If you will continue to bring that person, if you will bring that experience before the Lord over and over again, you will find the dart will be removed. The Lord will begin to drain the poison away. He'll begin to heal the wound. And now as you begin to think about them, talk about them to the Lord, you'll discover that now you are speaking out of love that actually hopes and believes for things that you won't believe for in the natural rather than speaking accusation against them. That's one of the reasons why the Lord doesn't answer some of our prayers because our prayers are accusing prayers. If we're really honest with them, they're manipulative prayers. Oh, Lord, I just pray you would change so-and-so. I, I pray you'd get them to stop doing so-and-so. You notice very seldom that we ever pray, Lord, give me more grace. Give me more love, more compassion, more forgiveness. Lord, help me to know how to navigate with this so that they can see a different way, a better way. You see, that requires me changing, doesn't it? And that's really oftentimes the Lord will use these things to grow me. But if I'm always praying that they change, I never grow. And most times they won't change. And then finally, allow Jesus to rescue you from Satan's lies. I believe the number one reason why we believe the devil's accusations, the number one reason why we act on his accusations so automatically and so quickly, and why we believe those accusations about others, is because many of us are living under the cloud of accusations against ourselves. We believe the devil's lies about us. And that makes it a lot easier to believe his lies about other people. It is almost impossible to love and accept others if you don't understand the depth of God's love toward you. Isn't it amazing when you first come to Christ and you are filled with his love, when you are, or when you are first baptized with the Holy Spirit, there is not a person you don't love. Do you hear me this morning? There's not a person. In fact, if anything, if there is, you just want to go to them. You just want to forgive. You just want to make it right. Why? Because the love of God has been shed abroad in your heart. You see, religion won't do it for you. Not at all. Religion doesn't have the power to do that because religion is dry and stuffy and made up of rules. If you do this, I'll do that. God loves me because when I do this or God doesn't love me. That's religion. But when you've been filled with the liquid love of God, you just want to be a conduit to share it with others. So freely you've received, so freely you give. So oftentimes, if you're dried up in that area of accusation, it's a good indicator that probably there's a real dryness in your own heart. That's why the devil just loves to pepper us with accusations, things we've done, things we've said, things we're ashamed of, things we're not good at. Any of those things ever crossed your mind this week? Could be stuff from a long time ago. All of a sudden, it comes to your mind. Man, I really blew it, you know. I can think of things today. I can be, you know, walking on cloud nine with the Lord, and all of a sudden, any of you will bring something to my mind from 20 years ago, and I'll feel like, man, I'm such a jerk. 
Who am I kidding? He does the same thing to all of us. Remember this. We said last week, the devil is a liar. So even when he tells you the truth, he's only telling you a bit of truth to set you up for another lie. That's how he works. You need to recognize his voice. Paul said we're not ignorant of his schemes. And also remember this, that what is true is not always the truth. I know you're starting to fall asleep, but wake up. Don't let this go over your head, okay? What is true is not always the truth. What I mean by that is this. For example, it is true that I fail, right? Would you admit that? It's true that you fail. But here's just one truth from the Word of God, Psalm 145. The Lord helps those who have been defeated and takes care of those who are in trouble. What I'm saying is, that might be true what I did or what happened, but it doesn't have to define me because there is a truth that transcends what is true at that moment. Yes, I fail, but the greater truth is there's a God who picks up failures, who forgives failures. It may be true that I've wasted many years of my life. might be true. devil comes at me and says, you've wasted 40 years of your life. I'm going to have to say, you know what? It's true. But the truth, God says, is I will restore to you what you have lost. That's the truth. Now, you may know some people like this. I remember a guy in Quebec, an old guy, 70 years of age, came to the Lord at 70, died at 72. But in those two years that he lived, he did more for God than I've seen many Christians do in a lifetime. God restored to this man a joyful, fulfilling, impacting life in his community because he just went all out for Christ. What is true might be true, but it's not necessarily the final truth. It's not the final word. Those are just two examples. I can go on all afternoon. But the underline, my friends, why it's so important that we feed on the word of God. I've said it many times before. If you know it, say it with me. God's word is not a book of rules. It's a book of... I've said this a lot. Like a lot, Okay? God's word is not a book of rules. It's a book of truths. Big difference. And when I get into the word of God, what I discover, it's loaded with truths. And every one of those truths are a light that the Holy Spirit will use to shine on a particular lie of the enemy to expose it. God's word is also a sword. So once that lie is exposed, I come at it with the truth and I destroy it. I cast it down, Paul says. I bring every accusation, every thought of the enemy. I make it captive. I make it obedient to Christ. Why? Because life is too short. I don't have time to give the enemy place in my life. I don't have time to give him foothold in my life. I don't have time to make enemies in my life. All I've got is time to live for Christ and to do the work of the kingdom and to see people impacted by the love and the presence of God. That's what life's about. Everything else will just bleed you, suck you dry. It'll, it'll just bring a cloud over your life and in your home and in your workplace, everywhere. People around you will suffer. But if you'll let the Lord set you free, it's amazing the freedom that begins to move around you. But you've got to choose to believe the truth over the lie. You've got to choose to take a stand and say, Satan, in Jesus' name, I've listened to your lies too long. The Word of God says... And I believe that I will stand on that. Whether I deserve it or not is not the issue. It's by his grace, and I stand in his freedom. That's where I want to live. That's where I choose to live. And friends, that's why, as I put on the overhead here, the less you value the word of God, 
the more you are vulnerable to deception. There's no way around it. I, I can't dress it up. There's no way to say it nice. If you don't read the Word of God, you're probably not even a Christian, number one. I, I just, I just got to be real. If you have no appetite for the Word of God, you're probably not a follower of Christ. You probably, you believe, you know, in a general sense, and the nice thoughts, and I prayed the sinner's prayer, but if you don't have any regular diet in the Word of God, how in the world do you actually walk with someone you never talk to? How do you have a marriage relationship with someone you don't talk to, you've never been intimate with? You just show up once a week, and like, like a brother said some time ago, you take them out of the closet, talk for five minutes maybe, and throw them back in and go back to your life. That's not a relationship. If the Word of God is not part of your life, you are deceived over and over. You have a form of godliness, but you don't have the power that could truly make you godly. That's what Paul said, friends. Is that real? Is that practical? Ask Jesus to show you the devil's accusations about yourself. Because he'll come at you and say, you're not good enough. He'll say you don't pray enough. He'll say you did this, you did wrong, you did, you did this wrong, that wrong. Why does the devil do that? Hear me, friends. He wants you to believe the deception. He wants it to take root in your heart. He wants that cloud to, to stay over you. Why? So that you never feel worthy to come into the presence of God. And if you're here this morning and every Sunday you come and you say, well, I just love the worship here. I love this or that about glad tidings, whatever. But if you come here every Sunday morning and every Sunday you come into worship and lift your hands, if your first thought is, Lord, I'm sorry for this week. Lord, I'm sorry I haven't prayed all week. I haven't been your word all week. I, you know, I'm sorry I live with myself all week. That can happen once in a while. But if that's your daily practice, it might be a good indication of, where you are and you walk with God. I'm not saying the devil can't shut us down in different ways at different times, but it ought to be a good you know, indication that we need to get serious and say, Lord, i got to get in your word. i got to spend some time with you. I, I'm just tired of this. Don't raise your hand, but if you're there, you know what I'm talking about. Lord, I'm just tired of every Sunday apologizing. I, I really want to begin to come into your house and worship you in joy and freedom. I want to be able to thank you for this past week and what you've done and what you've shown me and how you've used me and where I've seen your spirit move in my life. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I just go where he's working. I just do what he's doing. And it doesn't mean we don't miss it sometimes, but that's, that's our heart. That's our passion. But the devil doesn't want you to draw near to God, so he brings that condemnation in your life. But if you allow the devil in his lies to keep you away from the presence of God and away from the word of God, you will remain stuck in that cloud of accusation about yourself and about others. Two scriptures and we're done. Colossians chapter 2. Paul says, you were dead in sins and your sinful desires were not yet cut away. This is when you didn't know the Lord. Then God gave you a share in the very life of Christ. For he forgave all your sins and blotted out the charges proved against you. In other words, they were right charges. You were guilty. But he blotted out all those charges against you, the list of his commandments, which you had not obeyed. Would you read these next verses with me? He took that list of sins and destroyed it by nailing it to, the, to Christ's cross. In this way, God took away Satan's power to accuse you of sin. Stop there for a second. Do you realize what God did through the cross of Christ? He took away the devil's power to accuse you. And not only did he take it away, but he says this, and God openly displayed to the whole world Christ's triumph at the cross where your sins were all taken away. 
all taken away. That's what the cross of Christ has done for me. That's what he wants to do through me as I speak to others, as I speak about others, as I have opinion about different things. He wants that same redemptive flow to happen through me. And that's only going to happen if whatever is true and whatever is honorable and whatever is just and whatever is pure and whatever is lovely and whatever is commendable, whatever is excellent, whatever is worthy of praise, if you think on those things, the God of peace will be with you and he will reign through you in the final promise in Hebrews. So let us come boldly. I love the way this translation says, to the very throne of God. He's just saying, get what he's saying. He's not saying let us come boldly near where God is in the proximity. No, 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 no. He's saying what God has done through Christ on the cross is so thorough. The defeat of Satan is so complete. Your sins are so washed away. The accusations have so little impact on you. They have been destroyed by the Lord that you can actually come to the very throne of God right here. Hey, God, how are you this morning? And he doesn't say, hey, back off. You're too close. He says, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. Because in the presence, we find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. So friends, we can come boldly before the Lord. Accusation. We're going to come to the Lord's table as we conclude our service. And I'm going to ask the brethren to join me, if you would, at this time. If you're visiting this morning, we invite you to join us. Wherever you may be in your heart, we simply ask that you bow your heart before you partake of these emblems, if you haven't done so already, and say, Jesus, please forgive me for my sin. I give my life to you. I want to be a follower of yours. I ask you this morning to wash away my sin. If that's your heart's desire and you do that, then you come. The Lord says, I will come and make my house in you, and my Father will come, and my Spirit, we will come and live within you. And begin to teach you my ways, the Lord says. Begin to just free you from all the lies and accusations that you've listened to. But if you're here this morning and you're, and you're a professed believer, I want to encourage you as well. that The devil's been dumping accusation on you. You've got to see it for what it is. It's just this cloud of lies that you've bought into. And the Lord just wants to come with the truth of his word and penetrate that, that, that veil, penetrate that stuff that's been caked on you. He wants to break it off. And he wants you to see you for who he is. And for who you are in his eyes, he wants to set you free. But he also, friends, that's what it's all about. He wants to set us free that we might become people who bring freedom to others. That we stop speaking accusation. We stop being the mouthpiece of the enemy. Amen? Do you hear me this morning, friends? Imagine the impact of the body of Christ. If we determine, I'll only speak life. I'm just going to speak what I hear the Father speaking. I don't care what the person does, whether to me or irregardless. My only opinion is going to be, God loves them. Only opinion is going to be God can restore that. God can heal that. Oh, God has incredible things planned for them. Don't you love that when you're kind of in a funk and someone speaks life over you? Regardless of how you feel, this is what I see. This is what God sees. This is who you are. This is what you can do. What happens? Hope begins to well up. You go, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. And all of a sudden, it just, the lies just fall off. And again, you begin to walk in.